Our text for this morning comes to us from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Listen now for a word from God. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It's written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Good and loving God, thank you for today. Thank you for the sunshine. And God, thank you so much for time set aside to meditate on your word. God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning and that whatever word we would hear would be from you and not from me. In Jesus' name, amen. Is there something y'all have uh, desired so much that you wanted maybe more than anything you can ever remember? And you worked hard for it, and you sought after it, and on and on and on, and then as soon as you received it, or you got it, you experienced it, you went through it, it wasn't at all what you wanted, <laughs> like, like at all. Can you think of anything like that? Just, you don't have to share, but just show of hands. If you ever desired something and it turned out to not be the thing, okay, thank you, this is, this is good. I don't feel so alone. Because I could probably spend three hours up here just telling you stories about things I wanted that didn't turn out to be the thing that I thought it was. <laughs> I asked Pastor Sarah about this last night. And um, I said, is there, is there something you've desired? And like, you got it, and then you're like, oh, maybe I don't want that. And she looked at me, and she goes, yeah, marriage. <laughs> and she's, she's, just, she's just teasing, but <laughs> I, told her, I told her I was going to use that this morning. But she did talk about point shoes. Uh, many of you know that she was a ballerina before she was a pastor, which is, which is just a great career trajectory, if we can just take a minute to appreciate that beginning as a ballerina, transitioning to a pastor, and who knows what's next. But she, she talked about point shoes, and if you don't know, ballerinas have to earn their point shoes. And point shoes are those little pink slippers that ballerinas wear with the little wooden blocks in the toes so that they can get up on their tiptoes and you know, do their little spins and twirls. 
Sarah would uh, kill me right now if she heard me using non-technical language for ballet. But you have to earn your point shoes. It's not something that's just given. And oftentimes, ballerinas have to train for five, ten years just to get an interview and an audition to receive those point shoes. And she said she had to train for five years, I think, before she was allowed to go before the board or whoever it is. And um, she said once she got them, she was so excited. You know, she earned them and she's celebrating. And then she says, you know, you go to put them on and one, they're hard to get on. And then they're not very comfortable. And then you go to do the thing that you've been training to do for years and years and years, to get up on your toes like a true ballerina. And she says, and as soon as you do that, your ankle rolls, your leg collapses, and you find yourself on the ground staring up at the ceiling. And at that point, you're sort of left wondering, what do I want? What do I desire? The ballerina their whole life thinks, you know, once I get my point shoes, I'm going to be a prima. I'm going to be the best of the best. I'm going to be in all of the shows. And then once you earn the thing that you've been trying to earn, you realize, oh, I got years and years more to go before I get the thing that I thought I was going to get. For me, it was uh, my, my dream of becoming a collegiate athlete. This is something that I had wanted since elementary school when the Indiana Hoosiers came to our hometown and they, they put on some kind of convention or something, but the, the IU basketball team in Indiana is something, um, something like, you know, they're, they're celebrities, I'll, I'll say that. And I think every young person growing up in Indiana wants to play basketball for Indy, Indiana University. And I was certainly one of those. Um, once I realized that that was not going to be a possibility at all, uh, I shifted my focus and uh, started running cross-country and track and, and actually did get some offers um, to go run on scholarship. And when I reported to my school those first couple of weeks, uh, it, it was great being a collegiate athlete. I mean, I had trained for this, I dreamed of it, I got the scholarship I wanted, all of the things. And I was having the time of my life. And then classes started. <laughs> And life started. <laughs> and I started to realize, I was like, oh, I'm not cut out for this. And I, I was not a Division I runner. I wasn't even Division Three. I was like below all of that. And I still couldn't handle it. This thing that I had desired, it turned out to be something that wasn't at all what I thought it was. And I'll never forget going into my coach's office. And he, he's this ex-military guy. And uh, no-nonsense just sort of said whatever he thought and went into his office and um, I said, Coach, do you have a second? He said, sure, Mostowski, what's going on? He said, well, Coach, I'm a little tired and I need to catch up on some homework. I was wondering, can I take the next few weekends off of our races and invites? I don't really want to travel with the team. I just sort of want to hang out and do my own thing. And I just remember he just stared at me <laughs> and didn't blink. <laughs> And I think he thought that I was like going to laugh or crack a joke or something. I didn't. I was, I was waiting on, a, on an answer. And uh, once he realized I was serious, he goes, Mostowski, don't you ever ask me a question like that again. Get out of my office. And so I did. I left. But that was, I also left the team after that because <laughs> I realized I, I'm, I'm not cut out for this. I lasted one semester, something I had dreamed about for so long. 
We all kind of have those desires, don't we? Those things that we've chased after, that we thought was the thing that we wanted turned out to be not at all what we wanted. Nikki Giovanni, the poet, activist, and educator, was once asked about art as a tool for resistance. And Giovanni, in the interview, I thought, sort of avoided the question and then transitioned into talking about our desire for money and prestige. She was talking to a room full of college students and said, you're all so young, so you're going to want things, she said. Even in the face of those desires, she said, each of you, each individual has the responsibility to find deeper meaning for themselves and for others. I'm at the point in my life, she said, that I don't know that we can change the world, but I do know this. We cannot let the world change us. You cannot let the world change you. By which I think she means we cannot allow the world to determine our desires. Desire cannot be supplied from the outside. It must come from deep, deep within our own spirits. In our story for today, Matthew, the writer, wants us to know that the devil is trying to change Jesus. And maybe a better way to say that is that the devil is surveying Jesus' very real and human desires. And maybe an even better way to say it is that the writer wants us to know that there were at least three very real desires that Jesus had to assess to find what we might call his deepest desire. Let me set the story up for you. Jesus has just been baptized, and you've probably heard me say a million times before that Jesus' baptism by John is significant because it occurs outside the temple, which is to say he has cast some kind of judgment against the temple with his actions. And remember, too, that we've said that this may not be so much about the religious authorities occupying the temple at the time. It's more about the occupying Roman Empire. The temple is surveilled, policed, watched. Can you imagine that? Armed guards in a place of worship, armed guards in a schoolhouse. Excuse me. Sorry, my voice. <clears throat> I told you you're going to have to pray me through it. <clears throat> Armed guards policing a house of worship. And the only difference between now, 2023 in America, where we have this and back then, is that the Roman Empire cared very little for the individuals coming in and out of the place of worship. And they cared much more for keeping what they called peace, but what turned out to be just a kind of compulsory absence of any kind of conflict or criticism against the occupying state. 
Jesus' whole life was policed and surveilled by the Romans, and so, of course, he goes to the wilderness to be baptized by John. And we're told, as he's coming up out of the water, that he receives this kind of divine blessing. Do you remember that moment? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately after that, he goes, driven by the Spirit, even deeper into the wilderness. And even though he receives that blessing in his world, where he lives, where his body is located, he's still just a poor, marginalized Jew with very real and human desires. And I think some of these desires are competing within his heart, especially now that he has chosen this path especially now that he has decided to follow John and begin his ministry, or what we might more accurately call his resistance, his rebellion. This choice requires him to figure out exactly what he desires, and there can't be any questions about it. As a poor person, he's likely hungry more often than he would like to be, and the devil knows this. He desires food, but it's not just a desire for food, it's the desire to be full, which is to say it's a desire for comfort and ease. And so Matthew has the devil say to Jesus that he should turn the stones into bread. But actually, in this moment, the devil reveals a deeper desire inside Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been to a wild place before, but there's usually a lot of stones which means lots and lots of bread, which means maybe this deep desire Jesus has isn't just about Jesus feeling full for a day. Maybe it's about feeding all the other poor people in his community. It's the temptation to solve world hunger via God magic, fireworks, signs and wonders. If you really are the son of God, Jesus, use your power, feed the world. And Jesus says, no. And then he quotes Moses in Deuteronomy. We don't live on bread alone. As a marginalized person, Jesus likely desires security as well. And again, the devil knows this and so leads him to the top of the highest parapet of the temple, which, for those of you still keeping track, is not in the middle of the wilderness and reveals the sort of fictional tale that Matthew was weaving for us en route to revealing some spiritual truth. The devil leads Jesus to the parapet of the temple and says, if you are really the son of God, jump. Show all those Romans that you have divine protection. Show them that the angels will come and save you and put fear in their hearts, Jesus. And again, this is not just for Jesus. It's also for his community, all those who would stand with him as a marginalized person. It's this desire to guarantee safety for himself and safety for all those he loves. Give all your people a kind of peace, the devil says. And again, Jesus says, no. And again, quotes Moses, don't put God to a test. 
As a young Jewish man living during this time, Jesus also has the desire that many of his disciples reveal throughout his ministry, even at the end, during his ascension, when they ask him, when will you establish your kingdom, Lord? It's this desire for a kind of hoped-for Messiah to show up, dominate the Romans, end the evil empire of injustice, and reestablish a holy kingdom. And I want to be clear and say that this isn't necessarily every single Jewish person living at the time, but there is evidence that this was a sentiment shared among many. And I'll say, too, rightly so. I felt in my own heart the strong desire to conquer, the desire to ruin all those that I consider evil, the desire to wipe out those I blame for the world's problems. And so Matthew as the devil taking Jesus to this very tall mountain to show him all the kingdoms of the world, saying, bow down to me, and I'll give you all this. Which is to say to Jesus, follow me, and I'll show you the way. Which is to say, let's go ride on these fools, Jesus. Which is to say, let's operate without restraint, without love. Let's just start taking people out. Let's remove the real problem from the world, every last Roman and every single person that supports them. That's got to be somewhere in Jesus' heart, doesn't it? It's in his disciples' heart. It's in his people's hearts. How could it not be inside him? But again, he says, no, 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 no. And he quotes Moses again. We must worship God alone. And then the devil leaves, and the angels come to care for him. And we, the readers, are left wondering, what is Jesus doing? He won't use his God magic to feed the world. He won't guarantee safety for his community and his beloveds. He won't end the evil empire of injustice by a show of force and violence to establish a new kingdom. Well, then what does this Savior want? What does this Savior desire? Healing, love, a new world. Using magic to feed the world doesn't change the hearts of the greedy who pile and hoard the world's resources. More likely, it just gets Jesus killed faster or the empire finds a way to exploit him. Gaining a guarantee of safety for himself or his community wouldn't do anything because the Romans could still throw them into a ditch or make them carry their packs, or order them around to do anything they wanted, and at the end of the day, they're still just poor Jews in the eyes of the empire. And what's safety in a world that doesn't acknowledge humanity? And gaining the power to conquer all the kingdoms in the world wouldn't change anything about the world. It would just be one empire replacing another, a giving in to the myth of redemptive violence, one oppressed group, now oppressing another, and then another, and another, starting that vicious cycle over and over and over. Jesus desires beloved community. Jesus desires changed hearts. 
Jesus desires greedy hearts to break with compassion until they're able to share. Jesus desires those who would threaten to transform into protectors, lovers, and healers. And Jesus desires that the empires of the world just sort of melt away. No more war, no more tears, no more unnecessary suffering. And so he says no to all those things and instead chooses to die on a cross. Do y'all remember the, uh, the myth of Cupid? It's a rough transition, I know. Anyone? Myth of Cupid? A little bit? Cupid is that uh, little angel-like character from Greek and Roman mythology that shoots arrows at people. And if you get struck by one of Cupid's arrows, you know, the myth goes that the first person you see, you fall in love with. But actually, in the original version, Cupid has two arrows, one for desire and one for revulsion. And in one of Plato's dialogues, the philosopher Aristophanes comments on the myth and says that at its root, it reveals to us the core of all of our desires, which is the desire to belong, the desire to be whole, the desire to be connected, to not be left out or left behind. This is the desire of all desires. You've probably felt this way, haven't you? The desire to belong, to be loved, to connect, to be made whole. We're going to invite you this morning to receive a mark of ash and observation of the season of Lent. And Lent, as we know, is a journey where we're invited by God to examine our desires, to notice how our desires are directing our actions or distracting us from what matters. Lent is a time to ask whether what we are doing is really what we desire to be doing or if it isn't really what we want to be doing at all. It's not about our duty or our responsibility or our moral obligation to win some waged war against our temptations. It's an invitation to a deeper kind of liberation from unchecked desires that may in fact be leading us down roads we don't want to go down at all. It's a call to freedom, a way to make sure the world, the devil, whoever, isn't importing desire, isn't changing you. And we would all do well, I think, no matter our beliefs, to ask ourselves, what do I really desire? What do we as a church really desire? And do our actions align with those desires? Or do they need some adjusting? Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you for your son. Thank you for the life that he lived and his example. And God, I pray on this Lenten journey, you would help us get our desires right. 
you would peek into our hearts and reveal to us all the things that we want, God, and that you would show us our true desire. And Lord, I pray that you would help us receive it.